0: and take advantage of limited walk in hours. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. Well, my guest today is Jill Santapolo, whose novel Everything After goes on sale today. Jill, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: First of all, congratulations on publication day. It's always a fun day for novelists. Hopefully, even though this is COVID time, you'll be able to enjoy the day and and celebrate.
1: Uh, I have, I've been getting to talk to um, a bunch of different podcasters today, which has been really exciting.
0: Good, good. Well, to start with, tell us, give us a little bit of background. Tell us a little bit about, about everything after, and especially about the protagonist, Emily.
1: Okay. So um, Emily Gold is a therapist living in New York city, mostly happily married and trying to start a family. And then uh, something happens in her present that echoes a painful memory from her past and things that she had been keeping secret, even from her husband kind of come to light and her world starts to spin out of control. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, she hears a song on the radio and she realizes it's her ex-boyfriend singing about her. And once that happens, she, has to figure out if the path that she's been traveling is the one that she wants to keep traveling or if there is another way for her to exist in the world.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Emily, I, there's, a, there's a point early on, it just, just really struck me. She, she is thinking about her life and her husband's life and she, her, her husband is a, is a doctor. He works as a, uh, with pediatric cancer patients. And she says, Ezra's area of expertise is the human body, mine is the human mind. Um, I just thought that set up a really interesting dichotomy between husband and wife. How do you think that observation prepares the readership for their to, to sort of see their relationship?
1: Well, I think I think a lot of the the difficulty that they have in their marriage is that um, is that when you when you're someone who spends a lot of time in the human mind, the way Emily does, Mm -hmm. you think about things differently than if you're trying to heal a body. Cause I think when you're trying to heal a body, there is sort of X, Y, Z ways that you can try and do it. And either it works or it doesn't work for the most part, you know? And if it doesn't work, you can try some other ways, but there's, there's sort of, either someone gets better or they don't. And I think Mm -hmm. mental health is different in that way. In that, you know, a lot of times there are moments when your mental health can be good or not so good or you're struggling with things, but you can manage it. Um, And I think that she, she sees the world differently because of that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It strikes me that Ezra, I, I, I like the way you verbalize that because Ezra seems sort of results oriented, you know, mm-hmm. either he saves the child or he doesn't save the child and he reacts in, in different ways. Whereas, as you said, with mental health, there, you, you don't just get a stamp that say, okay, you're done, you're, you're right. cured, everything's fine now, you know. Right. Um, we also get a sense early on about the mental health strain that's brought on by their own work, by Emily and Ezra's own work. Um, you know, Ezra, again, with the, with the constant threat of having a, a young patient uh, die, Emily taking on, you know, all the things from, from her patients. Can you talk a little bit about the impact of caregiving on the mental health of caregivers? It seems to me this also is one of those things that is especially relevant right now. Um, even yeah. though you probably wrote this novel before COVID um could, could Yeah, you talk I handed about that? it
1: in like three weeks after lockdown. Yeah, um, yeah. but I do think it's incredibly relevant um right now because we're seeing all of the you know frontline workers who have been for the last year trying to take care of people in very uncertain times with very uncertain results, not enough. Um not enough PPE, not enough information really. Um, And I think, you know, we've been seeing lots of stories about how that's really starting to take its toll. And I think that, you know, it's hard for everyone to see things, to see things happening that are, um, that, that really are, are p- profoundly disturbing and upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the closer people are to the front lines of this pandemic, the harder they get hit. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think doctors in general have a lot to deal with if they're dealing with life or death situations with patients. And I think that's just been even more pronounced over the last year.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you do I do see both of these characters sort of taking on this this burden um, that it, it puts strain on them personally and it puts strain on their on their marriage as well. The, yeah, um, Emily actually compares psychotherapy to something called sin eating, which that was that was a, that was a, a very <laughs> powerful um, comparison, but it made me think, like, is there an inherent flaw in the whole idea of being a psychotherapist? That being that to be effective, you need to be empathetic, but if you're empathetic, you will eventually be, as Emily puts it, overwhelmed.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I I've never experienced being a psychotherapist myself. So I'm I'm just sort of imagining.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but but I do I do know that, you know, in my own life, listening to people who Are going through difficult times takes a toll on me just because you hurt for them. Yeah. You know, if it's someone that you care about and they're having a hard go of it, like that hurts you too. So I imagine that if you're a psychotherapist and you feel strongly about your patients and you care about them, that you'll take on at least a small piece of that.
0: I think maybe it seems to me that might be even more so for Emily because she is working um, at NYU with with college students essentially. So she's she's working with people who have tread the same path that she has tread um, in her past, and, I, and and to me that feels like that makes her especially um, you know sort of susceptible to taking on their burdens in in her own mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think particularly with one of the of the patients that she sees, like there are a lot of parallels, of course, on purpose um, between their, their lives. And I think that she perhaps should not have treated that patient. Yeah. (laughs) Perhaps should have given that one to a colleague.
0: So Emily has at at one point in her life go also goes through some psychotherapy and her doctor says, uh, and this is a quote, when you let yourself love someone, you give them the power to hurt you. I felt like this novel takes sort of a deep and really unflinching and, and un, unromantic, I don't want to say unromantic, but not rosy eyed view of love. Um, wh- what did you learn about love while, while you're writing this novel?
1: Oh man. Um, you know, I, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing to give someone the power to hurt you because it, it means that there is that depth of connection, you know, that, that I was talking about before, where if someone you care about is in pain, you're in pain too. And there's something really um, I think, powerful and wonderful about feeling that strongly about another person and connecting with them that deeply. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't necessarily think it's just romantic love that gives someone the power to hurt you. You know, it's, it's, parents, it's children, it's siblings, it's friends.
0: Yeah. I I feel like sometimes Emily, it almost feels like she uses love as a shield against darkness. Is that, do you see that? And if so, could you, could you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Yeah, I do think she does. Um, I think, because I think the flip side of love giving someone the power to hurt you is that it gives them the power to help heal you too. Mm-hmm. You know, that 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 deep connection, that deep emotional connection, um means that there is light in darkness, that there is beauty even when there's pain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that she she feels that deeply, both yeah. sides of that.
0: So one of the, the key points of this novel, and you alluded to this earlier, is this kind of balance between Emily's past and and her present, and she feels the pull of the past very strongly. Um, you know, part of that comes from, as you said, hearing this this song that she suddenly realizes is written by her, I mean, written written about her, which is a, just a great moment because I think the reader figures it out like a sentence or two before she does, and that's just a great feeling as a reader when you can sort of see it, see yeah. the revelation going about to dawn on her. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the balance of of past and present? within Emily and and what the place of the past in in her own psyche is.
1: I mean, I think her past really shaped her in a, in a very, um, in a very real way because she, I mean, she, she later in the book says that she looks back and all she sees is what she's lost, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. she is, you know, trying not to see that anymore. And I think that, that she in telling her own narrative, Would tell her past as a narrative of loss. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that is how she ended up where she was, because she was looking for a way to turn that loss into something helpful, you know, into something good.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And she ends up doing that in a different way, I think, um, the way a lot of artists do. Yeah. You know, a lot of writers or painters or singer uh, musicians, you know, go through some things and and turn that into art, and and you know that's where it's where she ends up. But I think it's it's because of her past that she gets there.
0: So you're you're telling these two parallel stories: the story of her her present and her past. Um, one of them is told in a sort of a first person narrative. Journal that, that she's writing, and the other one is told more in a in a traditional third person narrative. Um, w- which one of those came first for you did you Did you create this college student and then think what would happen to her later, or did you create this married woman and think what 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 happened to her a while back?
1: <laughs> oh, it's a great question. I think I think I knew at the same time that I was creating this woman and this was her story. Mm-hmm. that she had had this experience as a teenager that was impacting her now. And then I sort of needed to figure out how it was impacting her and why it was impacting her and what what that meant for the rest of her life. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and was there a particular reason that you chose the um, sort of the, the two different types of storytelling, the, the, the third person and then the, the sort of journal entries?
1: Um, I wanted them to to feel very different. Yeah. And I feel like there's something about being a teenager that is very, um, very intimate in a way and very singular. So having a first person journal for when she was 19, 20, um, felt, felt like it encapsulated that time in her life mm-hmm. in a particular way. Yeah. And then, as she's older, and there are more layers to her, it felt like I should open it up to a third person. And also, then it it was easy to know which story you were in.
0: Yeah, I will say that really it helped because I, you know, I've written novels where there are multiple time frames, and we always have this discussion about do we put a date at the beginning of the chapter? Do we, you know how do we? And it, it helped because um, even the typography, the the journal is is set in italics. The, the other part of the story is is set in Roman type. And so you immediately know kind of which, which time frame you're in. And I, I felt that that grounded the reader um, really well. The, the one thing I will say, and, and I liked this, but at first I would, when I got to the first couple of journal entries, I was like, I'm not sure what this is. The, the first one was the first two or three are really short. And it, originally I had a question for you about, the poems that you had in between your chapters, because I was like, "This is—they're poetic." Those first, those first ones. Um, so, can you talk about how you sort of build from these these pretty short entries then into something that's much more in depth and, and narrative?
1: So, what I had been trying to do was have the past be less important at the very beginning
0: mm-hmm.
1: and less important at the very end. And it was in the middle when the past was the most important because it was affecting her life in the present so much. Right. And she was kind of diving back into the past. So what I tried to do was increase the length of the journal entries from the beginning to the middle and then decrease the length from the middle to the end. And then I tried to do the opposite with the present sections yeah, so that they were longer at the beginning then they got shorter and then they got longer. Um, and that rhythm felt right because of what she was going through in the book.
0: And I think it, you know, it pulls the reader in in a way too, that at the very beginning, um, you know, to to the extent that you're, as a reader, rooting for Emily to make certain decisions, you know, at, at the very beginning, you're all about her present life and her present, and you're like, this is, this is absolutely where you need to be. And yeah, in the middle of the book, you really are questioning that as yeah. a reader, like, and, and then when she decides the thing that she decides by the end of the book, i I, I think you're with her it, I, I like the way that you take the journey with Emily and there were times when I was like, she's gonna do something I disagree with <laughs> And then later on I was like, well, she did that thing but but I don't disagree with it. you know does that make sense?
1: Yeah um I feel like throughout for through all three of my books, my characters make decisions that people have labeled like, bad decisions, like poor choices, <laughs> which is true, I think, um, sometimes, but I also think in, in real life, we don't always make the right decision yeah, all the time, yeah. and the most interesting things happen, I think, when you make an unexpected decision and then see Absolutely. where it takes you.
0: Yeah, I think a novel about somebody who made all the right choices would probably be a fairly boring, boring read, right? you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, I, um, as a male novelist, I have written female characters and, and people sometimes say, oh, how can you write a female characters if you're a man? I'm like, well, I write teenage characters and I'm not a teenager, but <laughs> you write about some areas of being a woman that I, as a man, would not have the, the courage to write about. And without getting too much into the, to the details, because I don't want to give things away. Um, you know, you write about the, the intimate details of pregnancy, for instance, um, can, can you talk about specifically about that, about about that level of intimacy about writing a, a character who is in the early stages of pregnancy and, and what she's going through physically, psychologically?
1: Um, yeah, so, so um, my husband and I were trying to get pregnant throughout many months of me writing this book. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Um, and I actually found out that we were pregnant when I handed in the revision, like literally that week. Um, so it was very much on my mind and I was very much sort of talking to people, talking to a lot of other women about being pregnant and their experiences and, Mm -hmm. um, sort of wondering what my experience was going to be like and I think, you know, part of what I always try and do is put my heart on the page in my books. In my MFA program, one of my professors always said, write like your heart is on fire. Um, And I think a lot of my books revolve around emotion that I'm sort of wrestling with and putting on the page and giving to my my characters to explore. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, while I was writing this book, a lot of what I was personally thinking about was motherhood and fertility and um, what it means in to become a mother in our current society. And if you're also, if you also have a career um, and what it means to a relationship, to your partner. So it was sort of a lot of what was on my mind ended up going into the book. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, there's parts of this book where I feel like, gosh, I wish I had read this in the months leading up to my child's birth, you know, <laughs> that, I, that I would have had, because I do think that it's, it's not always something that even married couples who are you have known each other for years and, and have a very close relationship. Sometimes the things that are happening to your own body and and your own mind are not always things that you feel comfortable sharing with other people, yeah. uh, even even with a with a spouse. And and so I love the fact that you know there are parts of this book that might might sort of trigger those conversations that that maybe an expectant mother needs to have, but but is difficult to find the courage to to start that conversation.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of things about pregnancy, childbirth, miscarriage, all of that that are very much still kind of taboo. Yeah. In a way. And part of why I wrote what I wrote in this book was in the hope of, of making women feel less alone Uh Uh when they were having those kinds of experiences and also hopefully encouraging people to talk more about it to their friends or, you know, publicly or, or whatever, you know.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean that. There's a. I'm trying to find that. I wrote this question down and I can't find it in my list. But I remember there's this really powerful moment um, where you say something like, "Even though you know you're one of 52 million uh, people you to have, a, like only have only this one. experience, you still you still feel like you're the only one." Um, and you know, I've had uh, my. You know, my daughter is now in her 30s and so she has friends who are who are having children and some friends who have had miscarriages. And, and it seems to me that generation is better than previous generations about talking about those things. It always made me really pained to think that um, if you lose a child before, you know, the end of the term of your pregnancy, you don't talk about it. But yeah. if you were to lose a child after that, the whole community would rally around you and and support mm-hmm. you and, and 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 love you. And it should be those should be equal things, it seems to me. Um and so I like the I like the way that this uh, sort of opens up some conversations about that.
1: Uh, yeah, I hope it will. I really hope it will.
0: Emily calls her sister Ari uh, her rock. Um, and it it does seem to be that even though their relationship goes up and down, you know they that seems to be kind of the one constant in Emily's life that's there she's there in a very similar way in the past as she is in the, in the present. Um, uh, Can you talk a little bit about their, their Serato relationship?
1: Um, Yeah. So I have two sisters um, and I think sister relationships are wonderful, but I, I think that there's a piece of it where whatever role you played in your childhood, in your sister's life tends to be the same, like, tends to be the same relationship, the relationship is it, it, it evolves, yeah. but if you were the one that your sister came to when they were upset, you will always be the one your sister comes to when she's upset. If you're the one who, um, you know, is goes to your sister, like it, it will be that sort of same dynamic. And I think that there's a very much older sister, younger sister dynamic with Ari and Emily yeah. where, yeah. um, Ari very much sees her role as the older sister taking care of Emily and Emily very much goes to Ari when she needs to be taken care of. Though um, what I tried to do sort of as the book went on is show that that was changing a little bit too, that there are things that Ari needed help with that Emily when she came to Emily, who could actually help her.
0: Yeah. And I like, I like some of the, and we're going to talk a little bit later about choices, but I like some of the choices that Ari makes in, in the book. They're not gigantic things, but they're things that show that she really pays attention when, when she's talking to Emily and when Emily is, is offering advice, Um, you know, little, little tweaks that she makes in, in her life that, that yeah. we hope are going to make her, you know, Happy. Happier, not that she's not that she's unhappy, but um well Ari is it says at one point that she's afraid of regretting her life choices. And and certainly there's a lot in this novel about choices that we've made. Um but uh, but before we get too far into that, I'm curious to know what you think what do you think Emily as psychotherapist would say about the usefulness of regret?
1: <laughs> um it's probably not all that useful, right? Because unless you're going to use it to make an informed change, you know, yeah. that I think, I think what I had said in the book was that Emily would prefer to regret things she had done or Emily, Emily regretted things she had done and Ari regretted things she hadn't done. Right,
0: right. Yeah. yeah. Um.
1: And, and I think that either way, um, no matter how you live your life, the regret is only productive if you then use it to move forward differently.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. I think it's interesting what you said before about, you know, that Ari sees her past as a narrative of loss where she could just as easily look at all that she has. I mean, she has a- Right. Husband, a successful career, a lovely place to live. You know, friends. And everything. You could just as easily look at it as as a narrative of the things that she has gained. Um, but it's interesting how her, she and her sister also look look at the past in in different ways. And I think that brings up something that is is very powerful about this book, this um, this narrative concept of context. Very similar things happen to Emily in the present and. I think it's something about like thirteen years in in the past, mm-hmm. um, but they happen in radically different contexts. Um, can you talk about how you use those contrasting contexts to kind of give us a window into Emily's character?
1: Yeah, you know, I think I think that a lot of times what happens to a person, um, their reaction changes based on what else is happening in their life at that time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So there are some things that if they happen at the right time, they're very exciting and wonderful. But if they happen at the wrong time, they can be earth shattering.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think that Emily kind of explores that in a lot of ways throughout the story of things happening at a time when you can take advantage of them or you can appreciate them. And um, and that 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 sort of is what she is trying to figure out with her husband, too, you know, timing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now there's one aspect of her past, though, that at the beginning of the novel at least is not intruding upon her present at all. She has suppressed it completely, and that is her musicianship, her, her love of music. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about, about music in this novel because um, it plays a huge role. But my my first question is, just based on how beautifully you write about it, are you a musician? Well,
1: so I'm not a good one. But <laughs> I, um, I took piano lessons as a kid. And then my elementary school let us choose an instrument in third grade. And I chose the flute because other girls were choosing the flute. Um, but I loved it and I played all through high school. I was in the marching band, um, the wind ensemble. I sang in the, the chorus and the show choir and the chorale and the jazz ensemble and whatever. Um, and I loved it. I was not very good. I really was not. Um, but I love making music and I still love making music. So that that passion for music is still um, part of who I am and, and part of what went into Emily's character.
0: Yeah, I always feel like you, the often, I know this is true in my books, often the, the things that we can write about most powerfully are the things that we feel passionate about. Um, and that to me, and the musical passages in this book, that's that's very clear. Um, can, can you talk about, also about crafting Emily's own emotional reaction to music, whether she's listening to it or or playing it? She has these deeply personal emotional reactions to her interactions with music. Can you talk about that a little bit and how how you sort of created those?
1: Yeah, you know, I feel like there's something about different kinds of art that can elicit emotion in someone. And for Emily, the art that elicits the most emotion is music. And I wanted to use that to show who she was, and to sort of give people a window into feelings that she might not be acknowledging in the narrative. And um, and because there are associations for her with music in her past that connect to the present, the music becomes a bridge, uh-huh. and her uh-huh. reaction to the music becomes a bridge of between who she was then and who she was now.
0: Yeah. Um, do you think music, is it therapy for Emily?
1: I think in a sense it is. I mean, I think it is in the way writing is therapy for me. Yeah. You know, I, I, I always talk about how my first novel for adults, the light we lost it was a novel that I started writing after a breakup because I wanted to have a friend to go through this breakup with me and started writing these scenes and I didn't even know it was going to be a novel. You know, And then, of course, once I started, you know getting more scenes and I, I shaped it into into a novel. But I think it's similar for Emily with with music. It's a way for her to process her emotion and to sort of channel it into something.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about when I look back at, I also am a not particularly successful amateur musician, but but um, I I really related to Emily because she and I both played piano, you know, and it, she'd be sitting down to play a song and be like, I played that song. I know the chord progression that she's doing, you know. Um, but I felt like it's the same thing in my own life. When I look back, like the times that I've spent the most amount of time sitting at the keyboard were times when there was emotional turmoil going on in my life. Um, And the times that I spent the least amount of time was the times that everything was kind of on an even keel. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think, um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts just about the role of arts in general in kind of maintaining our mental health.
1: I mean, for me, at least, I think that it's hugely important um, to have some sort of creative outlet for emotion that is, is not just, it's not just talking about them, it's, you can feel, you can feel it and you can channel that feeling into song or dance or writing or painting or or whatever form of creative expression speaks to you. Mm -hmm. And it gives you an outlet, you know? And I think it stops things from potentially getting overwhelming. Yeah. I mean, maybe they do anyway, but I think it's it's at least a, a sort of release valve. Yeah.
0: And I think for me, when, when music starts to come back into Emily's life in this novel, that's probably where I'm like cheering for her and with her more than any other place because of all the things in her past that feel like they could have a place in her present. Yeah. To me, that's the one that it, it, it feels like it's the most a part of her soul, you know?
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and, and so at one point she's, she's at a reception and she's watching this pianist, um, play and she's actually sort of like mm-hmm. silently, you know, fingering along with him because she's, she is such a good musician. And she says, she thinks to herself, the music was still inside her. It had always been inside her. She just hadn't let it out for years. What role does repression play in this novel?
1: I think, I think what she represses ends up being what she needs to heal. Hmm. So she's trying to repress these things that are so painful, but if she, when she accesses them is when she can actually truly heal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's one point, um, to go back to the to the marriage for for a minute, um, there's one point at which Ezra is clearly being bothered by something, and and he kind of won't tell Emily what it is, and she is sort of probing and asking her a couple of questions, and it, it, I don't know if it's in anger, but certainly in frustration, he he says, "Don't try to shrink me." Um, and I'm curious not just about what that reveals about their relationship, but almost really about any relationship where one of the people in the relationship is a psychotherapist or a psychologist or, or a priest or a counselor, you know, how, how do you, how do you separate the, the personal from the professional?
1: I think it's hard. Um, I think it's hard because it's, it's, a, it, you've been trained to think a certain way and to respond a certain way. And, um, I think that's kind of what Emily's just falls back on how she's trained her self to react when someone is trying to hide something. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's important for her to realize that he's her husband, not her patient. Yeah, And that um, she has to interact with him differently.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned earlier, you alluded to, um, one of Emily's patients, uh, one of the, a college student that she, she uh, is counseling named Tess, who is herself a young mother uh, and is, is struggling with ba- balancing college and relationship and, and baby and, and everything else that goes, goes with those. Do, do you feel like Emily sees herself in Tess or how does, that, how does that relationship with Tess sort of further illuminate Emily for the reader?
1: I think um, I think Emily sees Tess as a version of who she could have been, mm-hmm. and f- it feels particularly compassionate because of that. Um, that she she pictures herself in that situation and goes outside of what she typically would do for a patient and mm. probably should do for a patient if you're looking at the sort of medical ethics board yeah um yeah. and feels okay doing it because she i think in saving Tess on some subconscious level feels like she's saving herself
0: yeah yeah i, I find myself as a reader really torn when, as you said, she's doing some things that probably your psychotherapist shouldn't do. And yet it feels like Emily is, okay, at times I need to react to this person as, as a professional, but other times I just need to react to this person as a compassionate human being. Like, What would a compassionate human being do in this circumstance? And that might be different from what a psychotherapist would do. Is, yeah. is, do you think that's part of how she kind of rationalizes what she's doing?
1: I think so. And I think it's it's probably a piece of like what what does this person need from me as a fellow human being in the human race? You yeah. know? And yeah. Yeah. Which which always I think for her comes to like, what would I have needed at this po- point in time from someone else?
0: Yeah. So you obviously spend a lot of time creating Emily, creating Ezra, creating the sort of the major characters of this novel, but then you also have characters like Tess. And even to a certain extent, Ari, uh, the sister, who you know don't have as when they make the movie, these people will not have as much screen time. You know, they will not be played by Scarlett Johansson, right? You know. Uh, but um, can can you talk a little bit about just that the art of creating a minor character who still rings as true as the character that you can spend a lot more ink on? Yeah, I I,
1: I love creating the sort of secondary characters that fill out the world. And I try and create them in a way that with a few sentences, you can get an idea of who that person is in a larger way. So like one of the things that I did with Tess um, is to give her a pair of Ruth Bader Ginsburg socks.
0: Yeah.
1: You know, and for her to sort of be comparing herself as a young mom to Ruth Bader Ginsburg as a young mom in law school. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like with a couple of sentences like that, the reader would have a larger idea of who Tess was and, and what was important to her and how she sort of functioned normally. Um, and that could then be contrasted with what's going on with her now.
0: Yeah. I think that's really telling that, you know, for for a minor character, those little details are almost even more important than for a major character because you've got to pick one or two that tell us, you know, a lot. A lot. Yeah. 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 Um, Emily has another one of the minor characters, or or secondary characters, probably a better, better word for it, is Emily's friend Priya. Um, and she says this about choices, because it seems to me this novel is a lot about choices. So this is what I kind of think. I wanted to come back to at the end here. She says, choices are made all the time. One choice doesn't have to define our life. And it seems to me that Emily, and probably a lot of us, can very easily look back on our past and and recognize the choices um, that changed the course of our lives for for better or for worse. But we have a harder time realizing that we could make such a choice this morning. Um, Right. Uh, to change, to change her direction. How do do you think Emily deals with that, that, uh, that difference between the choices that she's made in the past and the opportunity for choice that she has in the present?
1: I think that, um, you know, I think that the point in the book where Priya says that is the point in the book where Emily realizes all paths are open. Mm -hmm. That, you know, she was walking down the forest and there were, she thought there were boulders, you know, along all these other paths, but actually she can figure out a way around the boulder if she wants, you know? And I think it is why she makes some of the later decisions that she makes Mm -hmm. um, to see if perhaps the path around the boulder is worth it to find out what's on the other side. but that she can also then go backwards and try another path. If that one isn't the one that she feels is the right one for her or perhaps not backwards, but find a different, a different route.
0: Well, I think we've done a fairly good job of something that's difficult with this book, which is to talk about it in an interesting way without giving too much away because there is, there's a lot here uh, for readers to, to grab onto and enjoy. We were talking a little bit before we started recording, um, about the fact that for me, not only did I enjoy reading the whole book but but there were there were subjects in the book that I came back to. There were conversations that I had with my wife about things uh, in the book that are things that we don't always talk about. So so I commend it to our readers. Um, and for you, we like to end every episode of Inside the writer Studio with the same 10 questions. They're very short answer. you can ask answer each one of them in, two or three words, um, but hopefully they'll give our listeners a little insight into writing and into your writing life. So if you're ready, we will begin our speed round. Whew, okay, ready. <laughs> okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Love. What word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Just. Um, where's your favorite place to write? On a couch. (laughs) Where could you never write? Outside. To what rule of grammar do you pay least attention?
1: (laughs) Um, That you can't put ands in the middle of a lot of linked items Mm -hmm. like this and that, and that, and that, and that.
0: Uh, what's the first book you remember reading?
1: Um, Rain makes applesauce.
0: What are you reading now?
1: I have a book waiting for me. I just finished. Um, I just finished reading the last summer at the Golden Hotel by mm-hmm. Aly- Alyssa Freeland, and I have Tracy Garvis Graves' next book, which is called I think um, I heard it in a love song, mm-hmm. and that's next on my list.
0: What book would you like to have written?
1: Oh, gosh, so many that I really admire. Um, Taylor Jenkins Reid's book, uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, I just thought was brilliant. Um, And Jandy Nelson's book, uh, I'll Give You the Sun, which Mm -hmm. I thought was genius.
0: Uh, What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would love to write a psychological thriller, but I don't think I will. Mm-hmm.
0: And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you?
1: Um, that my book made them feel less alone. Mm-hmm.
0: This has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett. And my guest today has been Jill Santopolo, whose novel Everything After is available wherever books are sold. Jill, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much. This was so much fun.
0: Inside the Writer Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro.fm supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to Libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. In our next episode, I'll be talking with Lisa Scottoline about her new novel, Eternal. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.